This is Aaron. This is Michael. And you're listening to The, the Nathans, Nathans and Ron Cast. It's our first episode. This is great. I'm really excited. I've been waiting for this moment all my life, Aaron. Well, it's finally here, and we are going to spend this podcast talking about the songs on our new album, Hello World, from uh, 1 to 10, and the first one is the title track, Hello World. Hello world, you are on the rise By the gleam of the screen, there's wonder in your eyes not much to look at. I'm a single line. Hello. Hey. <laughs> we actually walked through an alleyway into a street last night after our CD release concert. And I remember, hello world. You know, it was, it was kind of fun. We did a lot of things on this album that are similar to the last album. And we got a review on the last album that was very critical that we played too many things too well even though we both know that we're not so perfect, but this person felt like we were pretty perfect. And it gave us our good quote. And this album's gotten better reviews with some good quotes, which is awesome. But we still played 10,000 instruments. We did. So, uh, Aaron, you played steel string guitar on this one, harmony vocals. And then, because I am like to punish myself, I decided to do steel <laughs> string guitar, electric guitar, mandolin, electric bass, I did a lead vocal on here. Keeping going, there's a kick drum, not just a piano bench. Uh, we'll talk more about that later. Played a snare drum, which I'm not a drummer, but we tried, and it worked out. Greg Hugh Brady also played sine waves, computer beeps, a sampled kick drum, ambient electric guitars, and that's it. Oh yeah, Doug Hamilton on violin. There's no cello on this track. Isn't that crazy? That is interesting. We, uh, we, we finally got you to do something without cello. I know. It's, uh, sometimes it happens. I'm, I've been forcing everything but cello on people lately. So, in other words, uh, what should people know about this song specifically, Aaron? Oh, boy. Well, this is, uh, it's interesting that we're starting the record and, and the podcast with this song because it kind of marks a beginning this is a song about a computer programmer who is taking their first steps, learning a new craft, and just doing one small thing to show that they could do it. And uh, today's guest is really the best person to talk about this because he created this program. His name is Brian Kernahan. He's a professor of computer science at Princeton University. And back in the 1970s, he created the Hello World program which anybody who's ever done computer programming is familiar with, it's probably the first program that they did. They put about six lines of code into the computer, and if they do it correctly, out comes a single line on the screen that says, Hello, world, and it's got a, a comma in it. I think we dropped the comma when we were doing the song uh, because that's better for songwriting. But if you're actually computer programming, it's got that little little comma in there, hello, comma, world, exclamation point. So we wanted to create a song that celebrated this first step and celebrates anybody's first step into any new craft. If you're a, a piano player or any kind of musician, the first song you learn is Hot Cross Buns. I remember that from uh, an Elements book for strings back in 1990. 
1995, and Hot Cross Buns was a very notable melody and song that I didn't even know the lyrics for. Mm-hmm. And I have since tried actual Hot Cross Buns. Uh, were they any good? They were very good. But Hot Cross Buns is one of those tracks. And it's great that there's an equivalent mm-hmm. thing for computer programming because I never thought of it that way. And this song is, is interesting because when you listen to, 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 to the song itself, it sounds very complex. We, we layer a lot of stuff on there in, in celebration of the computer and the sounds a computer can make. You'll hear, hear sine waves, you'll hear um, boops and beeps. And, uh, beep, beep. But at its heart, it's a very simple song, and it celebrates how anything that is complex is really just a series of small things, and it could be a very long series of small things, but everything that is difficult is just learned in bite-sized chunks and that every task has its first step, and that's what this song is about. Yeah, and there's some moments in this song that I felt were really interesting. Uh, The main lick, da-da-da-da-da-da, happens at a weird spot, (laughs) rhythmically. And actually, Aaron, that's your fault. Uh, I noticed you're like, oh, we want it here. And that's what I love about Aaron's production. So we'll play a little snippet of where the violin comes in with that lick. And you can just see how it's a little bit offset. But it's just a G chord for any musicians out there. And there's a C chord and an E minor. There's like four chords in this song. We just shifted things off axis just a little bit and it takes something that's not complicated but it makes it seem complicated now when we were what i originally envisioned this as a very tight three minute song um something that would be radio friendly and it turned out to be radio friendly even though it ended up being about four and a half minutes and it ended up being that long not on purpose but because when we were recording the the bones of this song we hadn't talked about where to stop so we were just kind of looking at each other. <laughs> <laughs> we just kept going. <laughs> and I just figured, you know, well, well I guess we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of uh, figure out an electronic way to, to, to cut it short. But we didn't. We kept it. Yeah, we, we just, uh, in, in my mind, you can hear a G7 bluesy thing going on. Hello. that's like adding just a little bit of dissonance something surprising even though bluesy things aren't surprising this song doesn't come at you as bluesy and then leave it up to a michael ronstadt in the group to say let's make it weird so i just kind of went off on a tangent and you'll hear it on other tracks of the album but uh, you can hear it and all the beeps and boops and bops and we left that up to greg we just said hey recording co-producer multi-musician multi-instrumentalist genius guy at the soundboard can you just add some computer sounds and he went to town and he added ethereal guitar stuff on top of my ethereal guitar and all the percussion stuff we even did this thing where i took a little contact pickup if you tap it it sounds like an electronic kick drum so that plus a sampled kick drum made it sound kind of real like uh, zeros and ones in computer programming I i thought it was appropriate yeah, it, it was, and I think this track is in the spirit of folk music, even though it's got a lot of electronic stuff on it. I think at this point in history, it's now been 
60, 70 years since the advent of the of the computer and the ability of the computer to make sounds. And I think that's old enough that some of the sounds that we create on this track are vintage. And we wanted to create something in the spirit of folk music without it actually being the stereotypical folk instruments. So when you hear it at the end, uh, we're going to go and interview Brian next. In fact, we just revealed that we already interviewed him. Uh, but that's okay. Yes, it was a great interview. <laughs> and so without any further wait, let's go to the interview. Let's do it. Hi, Brian. Hey, guys. Good to see you. We're so honored that you're joining us today. And why are we having you on this podcast? It's it, it's in large part because we kind of named the album after uh, something that you that you did, more or less around the time I was born in the early 70s. Before we get into all that, I think one of the things that really blows me away about what you've done is that you've kind of taken complexity and and made it understandable for the masses. You've written all these books. You haven't just just written you were on the team that developed unix and you've you've done a ton of of coding work over the years but i think one of the things you're most known for are your books was that a a choice did you go into into this career thinking i'm gonna i'm gonna be a translator or was it uh just something that that developed naturally i certainly much closer to the latter i i don't think (laughs) it's inconceivable i would have thought of it as a career in some sense and certainly not umpty ump years ago. Uh, but I sort of drifted into it, I think, because I found that a lot of the people around me weren't very interested in, let's call it documentation or explaining to other people how things worked or whatever. They were interested in whatever work they were doing, but there was less of the, gee, maybe I can talk, tell other people how to use it. And so I found kind of an ecological niche, perhaps, in writing tutorial documents. Um, and uh, some of them, like the C book that Dennis Ritchie and I wrote, was basically a tutorial that escaped into the wild and got bigger. So, uh, yeah, but I certainly never thought of it that way originally at all. One of your early books uh, was called, uh, I, f- I forget the name, but it had the elements of in the name. Yeah, there was, um, Bill Plogger and I wrote a book called The Elements of Programming Style, and, and the title, and, and actually a substantial amount of the general approach, was uh, stolen from this drunken white elements of style book where you would take basically bad example of something strunk and white was bad example of written english we did bad example of program and then showed how you could improve it and then derive some rules about style for programming from that and we did that quite a long time ago early 70s something like that at the time when i don't think people appreciated how important it was to try and write programming well. Did, did you uh, did, did you do any writing when you were young? Did you ever pick up uh, the elements of style and, and use it to, to help craft any writing? I don't think so. Not until probably after I was actually out and working. I, th- I think the first time that anybody actually took something that I wrote and tried to improve it was... My PhD thesis, where Doug McElroy, who was a friend and had been my boss at Bell Labs, read it and basically shredded it, you know, red marks all over the place. And I realized at that point that, you know, there was something to this and it was possible to write better. And I think, I don't know where that was the first time, but that was certainly very instructive. And fortunately, when I was at the labs, I was surrounded by 
a variety of people, particularly Doug, but others as well, who uh, took their writing seriously. And so when somebody wrote anything, uh, you know, technical paper, documentation, whatever, other people would comment on it and try to improve it. And I think that that was very, very useful for all concerned. Have you always been a, a reader? What, what, what kind of stuff do you read other than technical uh, manuals? Uh, yeah, right. I, yeah, I think I've always been a reader. I, I I remember back probably in about second grade, the discovery that the closed wooden cabinets that were in the school where I went during the day actually were a public library that in the evening opened up and there were books there. <laughs> it was kind of fun. And, and so definitely I read a lot. And I wouldn't say anything of necessarily quality, but I certainly read a lot when I was a kid. I went through phases of children's detective stories kind of things and science fiction. I guess everybody goes through science fiction in their teens or something like that. Today, I think I alternate between history books, sometimes biography, or junky detective stories. And I'm reading one on basically the 17th century in England, right at this point, the time from James I to James II, which is a fine example of history. And I have no idea why it's interesting, but you know, it's fun. And so I did a lot of that kind of thing when I was a kid. There was a hiatus and then back to doing that right now. I have a question for you. I, I was curious, you, you had mentioned that there was a lot of collaboration between everyone. Did it feel truly collaborative? Because it, that, that to me seems like a really interesting parallel to how musicians work we we collaborate a lot it's it's not just a lonely thing you know and and with programming sometimes i think of the stereotype is like you're in a room with a computer by yourself i think the collaboration tended to be not so much on the code and i'm speaking only for myself here uh the collaboration tended to be less on the code itself but on the talking about it and then it was more like handing off from one person to another, as you might do, I suppose, in jazz or something like that. The Unix operating system work, which the core operating system was Kent Thompson and Dennis Ritchie, and I think they ping-ponged back and forth a fair amount, and each one would write a part of it, and then the other would work on that. The things that I've worked on with other people have tended, again, to be that back and forth. Right? It's not really simultaneous. It's more like, okay, I did something. Now it's your turn. It, it's really interesting for me to see the two of you at one time because I think you're both great translators of complexity into your various areas of expertise. Michael has really taken – I mean, he – he writes some of the most complex pieces of music. And yet when I sit down with him, he shows me how to do my parts. And it's, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's doable to play them on guitar. Um, and, and, and you know, Brian, you, you've taken uh, computing and made it available to so many other people. I mean, I, I was talking, I was texting with my, my brother-in-law who was at IBM. He, he graduated from MIT and when I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you, he was excited for me. He basically said that you took the scariness out of approaching the computer, that, that, that it wasn't that once somebody was done reading, especially, uh, you know, that, that landmark book that, that, that you co-wrote on, uh, on the language C, all of a sudden it wasn't so scary anymore for somebody to take their first steps into computing. Realistically, I think most of the people I worked with were really, really first rate sometimes totally off-scale programmers, like Kent Thompson in particular. Um, and so in a way, I could be kind of an intermediary or an impedance matcher or whatever for people who weren't at the same league as they were. Mm -hmm. 
So, <laughs> but I certainly didn't program at their level. People who are listening, you, you, your life story and your story in in uh, computer science, especially, has been. I, I looked on YouTube. There's a bunch of interviews. Uh, so that's been covered, but I want to really focus on the Hello World program, you know, because that's the people who are listening to this podcast have probably heard our music, uh, probably heard the song Hello World, and are curious about how it entered our lexicon. Before you wrote that, I guess it was just a passing mention in, in your 1972 book about the language B. I did a quick search for the words Hello World, and it came up just once. Yeah, it wasn't a book. It was actually one of these tutorials that I mentioned. Ken Thompson wrote a very simple programming language that he called B. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was an interesting language. How do other people learn about it? Ken didn't write documentation. And so I wrote a uh, tutorial about it and I needed a first example. And so this idea of let's just print something at that time on the terminal, which was an electromechanical typewriter kind of device. And so what's the simplest thing? And you print some kind of message. And I don't know where the inspiration for let's just print something came from. And the particular wording, the hello world, I have a memory uh, that of a sort of a cartoon that showed a chick coming out of an egg and, and saying hello world as the caption. But I've told the story enough times now that I have no idea whether that's true or whether I'm just (laughs) (laughs) making it up as we go along. Do you have any memory of the phrase hello world being in the lexicon before that? I do not. Um, There's a guy named Martin Richards at University of Cambridge, um, the creator of the BCPL programming language, which was the predecessor of Ken's B. And he had done something similar, I believe. He and I traded mail about this a long time ago, and he said, if I recall correctly, that I was the first mention of it, but I honestly don't know. And so no documentation from either side, really, uh, of where it came from. So it may be one of these things that was in the air. The phrase, hello world, especially in the computer science um, context, went viral before the internet truly took off. I mean, it's now... It's not just used as an introductory program uh, in C. It's it's in pretty much every program you could find. I, I saw a page devoted to to all hundreds, I guess, of uh, of programs. In addition to how to say hello world in various languages, um, I saw on Spotify there's like fifty songs. <laughs> Are you? Have have you ever just kind of looked in awe at, at at how this has kind of taken off? Well, awe is not the right word. Bemusement, perhaps. <laughs> I have seen there's a site called HelloWorld.com or something like that, which, as you say, has versions of the program in probably hundreds of languages, mm-hmm. and that is certainly interesting. I had I don't use Spotify. I'm, I'm old fashioned enough, and I have most of my <laughs> music on CDs, but <laughs> although I've ripped most of them, but I, it's very strange that it took off like it did, uh, and I honestly don't know why, and I certainly had nothing to do with that, but it's kind of intriguing mm-hmm. just to see it. I don't know whether the idea is as useful in other languages as it was in C at the time. I don't know, touchstones in computer science, there's the 99 bottles of beer on the wall, which is, I'm sure, a song that you are familiar with. Absolutely. <laughs> and and yeah. that one... Um, has programs for printing the lyrics 
in last time I looked, nearly 1,600 different languages. Uh, <laughs> so uh, maybe maybe that's an idea for a future album for you. Oh, sure. <laughs> we can just do the entire song, Mike, a little. Uh, that, that's the cover we've been day. looking for at our shows. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so let's see if we could trace uh, uh, how Hello World uh, entered the uh uh, if not the lexicon, at least the computer science world. And by the way, in that in initial tutorial, it was right over a phrase uh, that said, now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party. What can you tell me about that? And why were the, why were hello world and that phrase kind of on top of each other? You know, that's interesting. I haven't thought of that. It, that phrase about now is the time is one of those things you use to kind of warm up your for typing or something like that, I think is, you know, it's something that you can type very quickly that is more representative of what you might type than let's say the quick brown fox or something like that. Right. And so I can type that one fairly fast, but it's too long and it's to be an example. I guess, you know, I never thought of the association there. That's kind of intriguing. I remember using that from time to time in documents if I recall correctly, I wrote a formatter for, that is a text formatter, for printing my PhD thesis at Princeton. And I needed examples of text to show what it did. And I think that now is the time kind of you know, complete cliche. I mean, perhaps it was the lipsum orum of the time. <laughs> So you just take took these two phrases and it just we're, we're just warming up. I think so, although I <laughs> I'd never thought of them in conjunction before, which shows that you've done your homework and I have completely forgotten everything. Well, I couldn't begin to tell you about any any uh, lyrics that I wrote twenty years ago, much less fifty. Hey, Aaron, we're gonna have a commercial break. This is our first commercial. Our first commercial. And, you know, guess who the sponsor is? Who? Us. Oh, my God. How did we land them as a sponsor? Well, I asked really nicely last night before I went to bed. I said, hey, me, what you going to do? I think I could spend some time with you for a while. Wait a minute. That's Amy. <laughs> Never mind. Oh. But uh, we have some myrrh. Myrrh. What's the difference between myrrh and merch? Well, it's just one item that we're selling. Myrrh is the singular of merch. We have one myrrh. Some might say that means ocean. That's myrrh. This is myrrh. Okay, there we go. We add an extra R, M-E-R-R. -R. So we have coffee mugs. We have coffee mugs printed, special, with the, with the, uh, the image of the, the, the album cover on them. I, I've watched you drink coffee from that mug, and it looked like you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more. The coffee actually tasted better when coming out of a Hello World Nathan's and Ronstadt mug. So this is our plea for you to come out to a show, because we will have our myrrh on the table. And if we ever get merch, we will let you know with another indulgent commercial. Uh, we also will send you one personally if you send us a note via all the avenues that we have online. That's right. Uh, if you're looking for a simple way to get in touch with us, just go to nathansandronstadt.com. That's Nathans with an S and Ronstadt with a DT dot com. And you can get, uh, just drop us a note, drop us an email and say, please send me a coffee mug and we will tell you how to send us some money and we will put one in the mail and lovingly have it 
uh, shipped off to you. And you can enjoy saying hello world to the morning, uh, in the morning. However you do your morning. However you do your mornings. You do you, and we'll help you do you. We'll help you do you. There's no, <laughs> the best part of waking up is uh, using a Nathan's and Ronstadt hello. cup. Yeah. Hello world cup. That works. Back to your programming that you're hearing. That's our programming because we're doing the commercial for ourselves. So back to the regular scheduled programming for the song Hello World. Here's our interview, part two, with Brian Kernahan. So, okay, moving on here. So then uh, a few years later, you wrote the book with, with, with Dennis Ritchie. So Dennis was your collaborator on Unix when you were at Bell Labs. And then uh, he went ahead and wrote the language C, which was a project that you weren't immediately working on in actually creating the uh, the language. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I, I had nothing to do with the creation of Unix, the operating system, nor C, the programming language. Um, I was in the same group of people. Ken and Dennis were friends, uh, but they were building much more sophisticated kinds of things. And I was really a user. And then sort of as we talked about by accident, somebody who helped write down descriptions of what they were doing that made it possible for other people to use it as well. The C book, I had written, I wrote this B tutorial. That's the place where the first Hello World showed up. And then when C came along a few years later, I uh, basically repurposed the B tutorial, beefed it up, changed it to, to work with C instead of B. And tutorial was reasonably popular inside the labs. And I guess it probably got outside a bit. Um, and at some point, I twisted Dennis Ritchie's arm into writing a book with me. Yeah. So who, can you tell us a little bit about Dennis? I know he, he passed away about 10 years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. 10 or 11 years ago. Yeah. He was um, about the same age. He came to Bell Labs probably a couple, call it a year before I did. Uh, he had, His father worked at Bell Labs, and so he had been in and around the place for some while before he actually showed up. Um, he was a applied mathematician at Harvard and came to the labs, let's call it full time in 1968 or something like that. And so he and I were in the same group. I don't think I knew him as well for the first few years, uh, just accident of working on somewhat different things. And I don't remember the connection that you know brought us together, although it's probably me working on the C tutorial and trying to figure out more about the language by asking Dennis how things worked and, and using the language for writing my own kinds of programs. Yeah, so I think that's more or less the story. And then we, it wasn't a very big group numerically. I would guess the Computing Science Research Center for quite a while was maybe 30 people covering different kinds of computing a lot where basically software, you know, write programs kind of thing, but there are also a fair number of people who are interested in theoretical computer science, people who are really mathematicians in disguise. So mm -hmm. a spectrum uh, of interest in that sense. Mm. So I want to quote from the book. Um, let's see. So it begins, uh, well, the, the relevant portion, which is toward the beginning, says, uh, the only way to learn a new programming language is by writing programs in it. The first program to write is the same for all languages. Print the words, hello, comma, world. This is a big hurdle. 
To leap over it, you have to be able to create the program text somewhere, compile it successfully, load it, run it, and find out where your, where your output went. With these mechanical details mastered, everything else is comparatively easy. Where did you get the idea to take this passing reference in the previous tutorial and expand on it? I Well, I, I don't remember. I'm going to bet that the B tutorial said something similar, except that B was simpler in its operating environment because there was no compiler. It was an interpreter. The technical mm. distinction that in many ways no longer matters, but at the time it meant that creating a C program was somewhat more complicated than creating uh, than just running a B program. I don't remember um, how I created that sort of somewhat pretentious prose there at the beginning. <laughs> and it's not quite as simple as, well, you know, you got it to print hello, now you're done, the rest of it is just details. That <laughs> sounds a, a bit optimistic by today's standards, but Maybe it was closer to true back then when programs were very small. It completely reminds me of how, say, the introduction to Gordon Epperson's cello um, exercise book, you know, with scales and everything. And it's saying, you know, the key to vibrato is blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the, usually the overarching summation is pretty much, you know, you've got your, <laughs> you've got your, I'm saying, okay, we need to master all these techniques so that we can make music and express ourselves and all that stuff. And it's, it's, it's pretty much like you don't want the instrument to be a hindrance to be able to say something with it. We want to communicate to others. And that is so important as a creator of anything that you, your, your, your language that you're using is not something that is going to get in the way of actually trying to communicate with others and i just uh, you know it, it doesn't sound pretentious to my ears at all it just sounds like okay you're a beginner we need to let you know that this is the first step and hey this is this is how you get there and once you get through this eventually you'll be able to say what you need to say but you know it's <laughs> as you cite that example it's, it's it's sort of like well the equivalent would be saying okay so you pick up the cello and you run your bow across whatever the, the primary string is and you get a note you know the rest is just details <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's true and it's so hard and you, then you later find out that the bow is like the hardest thing ever and so i'm sure there's equivalent things in programming we're like well this is difficult you know so, so. <laughs> i'm gonna quote to you from my, my brother-in-law again the uh um uh, computer engineer he said the idea that this dead box is being brought to life and animated by you the reader of the book, by just writing a few lines of code, must have made many people feel powerful and excited, giving them an "I can do this" feeling. Um, what did? What was the first time that you realized that it was resonating with with people? I would occasionally get comments, sort of like the what your your brother in laws expressed that pretty eloquently, in fact. But I th I would get that sort of feeling that you know it, there's a hurdle and this kind of simple example, maybe not just hello world, but simple examples like that get you over the hurdle where you start to understand what it is you're doing. And then it becomes, okay, I just need to improve my technique, it, but it's not a mystery anymore. Mm. And, you know, it, it reminds me of the first time that I created a web page, which is, it was new to me. This was back in probably 1995 or something like that. And it was Wow, I you know I just put these relatively few things, the equivalent of hello, in a file, and I put it in the right place, and lo and behold, it's out there for the world to see. 
And it's that same sort of feeling and that, oh, that's all there is to it. And then the rest is filling in the details to make it bigger, fancier, nicer, whatever. Um, so an analogous feeling that that one I can remember uh, from, you know, basically creating the first web pages that I did back in the 90s. What can you tell us about the language C? Why do you think that that language endured so much? I mean, you, 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 you picked this language to, to, uh, to write uh, not a manual, but a, just a, you know, a, a book. And, and somehow, you know, through, through years and years and years, it's, it's stuck around and remained enormously popular. Why is that? Why is C so successful? Has it persisted so long? It, you know, it's a great question. I think the original appeal was that it was such a good match to the time, the environment, and so on. It was very expressive in a, a way that other languages probably weren't. It was a good match to the computers at the time, particularly the PDP-11. It was simple enough that a user could understand it. And it was simple enough that you could compile it very effectively into efficient code for the computers of the time. And that you could, as a programmer, you could imagine what the compilation would produce. At least you didn't need to know it in detail, but you could see how it was going to work. And all of that meant that it was this combination of efficiency and expressiveness that was very important. It, things had to be efficient because the computers at the time were so wimpy. They had very, very little memory. They didn't run very fast. And so you needed something that made it possible to say what you wanted to say. And that could be generate, that could generate very efficient code to make use of the limited resources. Uh -huh. So that's what, what made it um, so popular at the time. Why is, I mean, there's, I, I, I as a non-programmer, I can only imagine how many details I'm skipping over here, but I, I Googled the, uh, you know, the top languages today, and I think C was still number three. So now we've got unlimited memory almost. Why is it still robust? I think part of it's the embedded base. There's an enormous amount of code out there that's written in C, and you can't just throw it away. And mm. it, it's, you could, in principle, rewrite it in something else, but that's counterproductive probably. Uh, you would probably introduce errors that weren't there, or at least you introduce new errors as you try to clean up old ones. So I think part of it's just the embedded base. Mm -hmm. uh, and so part of it is that it runs on everything from the tiniest little machines. I mean, I don't know. There's probably a processor inside your microphone. It's probably running C, right? And so everything from that to the biggest possible computers and its advantages of expressiveness and efficiency matter in a lot of those settings, especially for the little tiny guys. And so I think C has gotten kind of a, it's like continuous surfing in a way. It, it started with the mini computers of the 70s, and then it got a new bit of life from the um, workstation markets, some microsystems and things like that 10 years later. And then it got another life from the IBM PC. And then it got another life from, you know, little tiny, tiny devices, uh, IoT type devices. So in some sense, it keeps, as, as new, smaller, less powerful things come along, C is still a good match for them. 
Um, <clears throat> whereas the computers that you and I use, like oh, our laptops and so on, they have a lot, they have computing resources to burn. And so mm. those, you can use languages which are easier for a programmer to use, but are less efficient in their use of the machine resources themselves. And so it's, it's some combination of efficiency, universality, it's everywhere. Most programmers know C, uh, although yeah, there's this question of whether it's going to be like everybody used to know Latin, but that kind of went away. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe that maybe people don't all know Latin anymore. So uh-huh. um, I don't know what, whether that lingua franca aspect of C will eventually disappear or be replaced by something else. I wouldn't be surprised. But, you know, the other thing is that, and again, it's, I guess, loosely parallel to Latin. Other languages are strongly influenced by C. In many cases, their surface syntax looks fairly similar. Um, and so if you, you know, can read those, then you can kind of figure out what's going on in C. There are details you have to get right, but I, I think it's going to be with us for a while yet. So do you have any, any good stories about people who have walked up to you and, and, and told you about their experience with the Hello World program? I, I think the, the weirdest experience perhaps was there was a charity auction. I don't remember who it was in aid of. It might have been the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum in New York, something like that. And it was run by, uh, I think, Artsy, the, the art on, online art uh, store or whatever. Um, and they, had, they asked me to create a handwritten version of the Hello World program on, you know, alternating color fanfold paper or something like that. And they <laughs> auctioned that off for the benefit of this charity. Uh, so. Wow. So in some sense, that's the weirdest, perhaps. <laughs> uh, and, and did you go ahead and do it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Why not? Uh, somebody got Did some, it raise a lot of money? It sold for what I would think of as, I don't remember, it was some modest thousands of dollars, which is just preposterous. But, you know, <laughs> if, it, if it did some charitable institution some good, that's fine. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> wow. Well, that's kind of like asking you for your autograph. Um, yeah, right. right? So, so somebody paid for it. They could have had it for free, right? So, uh, did you ever? I mean, did the thought ever cross your mind of trademarking, or, or uh, I mean, I know that it's kind of being working as as staff at Princeton. I see a lot of people who have done a lot of good by by taking things that they could have made a ton of money off and keeping them open source, right? I mean, did the thought ever cross your mind to to uh, you know, this is starting to take off. Let's trademark it and see if we could make some. I mean, I know you wouldn't do that, but but why 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 didn't you do that? Um, well, first, it didn't belong to us. It belonged to AT and T, which was the corporate masters of Bell Labs. So, it, mm. not our decision in any case. The other thing is, that there was actually in the very late '60s a technical case related to that. There was a guy who created a language called Track T R A C, and he uh-huh. wanted to control that. Um, uh-huh. And so he trademarked the language and tried to protect it with various kinds of intellectual property 
law and it didn't fly. It's basically he wasn't unable to protect it. He might have been able to protect the name as a trademark, but nothing more than that and not the use of the language or the design of it or anything. And so I think with that experience in mind that it was well known in the community, nobody would have suggested trademarking the language name itself. Or, or the phrase hello world. Oh, hello world. Yeah. No, of course not. There's nothing you could do there, I don't think. Uh, I, well, I'm not a lawyer, as you are well aware, and, and so I don't know. Could you have trademarked Hello World in a particular context? Yeah, I'm sorry. Perhaps you could. Um, uh-huh. Would it have done any good? No, none whatsoever. The closest parallel thing was that AT&T trademarked the name Unix, and they tried very hard to protect that as a trademark for their particular operating system. And I think technically it still is a trademark of somebody, but nobody pays any attention. Mm. And so it's one of those trademarks that escapes into effectively the public domain, you know, like Kleenex. And right. so I think the same thing would have happened if we had thought about it. But it was, you know, I, impossible. We would never have even thought about it. <laughs> oh, sure. Do you, do you smile when you see it out there in popular culture? Uh, when you, you're just walking down the street and you see Hello World written in a context that has nothing to do with computing. Yeah, I think it's kind of amusing sometimes. I, yeah, you, you occasionally see one. I don't have one on the top of my head at the moment, but occasionally I do see something like that. I think, oh, okay, that's kind of odd, but what the heck? <laughs> it's kind of like the the, the, the the butterfly effect, right? That uh, just one little thing that you did back in nineteen in the early 70s, somehow found its way over to Lady Antebellum, who wrote a song called Hello World, having nothing to do with uh, um, with computing, and will sell a lot more uh, downloads and uh, log a lot more streams than, than my Hello World uh, will ever do. Um, well, I hope but, yours does amazingly well. I mean, that would be great. <laughs> well, th- thank you. Um, so I, I guess... I know we've been talking a while and I, I, there's so much more to your career, so much more to your books. Uh, I, I read some of your millions, billions book a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, do you, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the, some of, of what you're working on these days? Are you writing a book? Are you uh, I mean, not doing more than, you know, just teaching? Yeah, I'm doing a couple of things. Uh, the only one that's in any sense technical, I guess, is that, Al Aho and Peter Weinberger and I back in the 70s did a language called Auk, which was another one of these languages which steals the surface syntax of C, but was meant to be easier to use in certain kinds of applications. And, we, and you're the K in, in Auk, yeah, right? Exactly. And so we wrote a book about that in the late 80s. And the language is still widely used. Uh, it's it's certainly not number one, two, or three, but it's in the top fifty-ish, depending on how you count. Um, and and the book is kind of dusty, and so as sort of a spare time project, I have been trying to refurbish the book, bring it forward uh, into the modern era, and I'm still playing with the program itself. So so that's the one of the main technical things that I, I've been doing. Is it? Useful? Yeah, probably not, but it's kind of fun. Uh, is it okay to ask how old you are? Yeah, uh, sure. No, I'm 81. 81. So you're, and you're still, I mean, you're not emeritus. You're, you're full time. Yeah, still working. Yeah. 
So why are you still at it when you, you could have uh, gone off to an island in, uh, in the Caribbean a long time ago? I don't know what I would do if I went to an island in the Caribbean. I think I'd be probably bored. And so, you know, what well, you know, hanging out at a university is actually quite quite a nice gig in a lot of ways. It is. It really is. And from my standpoint, you probably see the same thing. You know, there the big annual rhythm of the place is very nice. It's better than, you know, you work and then you take two weeks of vacation and you work. The, the annual rhythm is good. The kids are a renewable resource. Every September you get a new batch of really interesting young kids. And four years later they disappear, except they don't really disappear. They keep coming back. Uh, uh-huh. At the same time, you get to hang out with an amazing collection of adults. And so... Uh-huh who do all kinds of interesting things like you you're across the, the street from me and you write music yeah and you know all kinds of stuff like this so so it's actually from that standpoint quite a nice place to be and so at least at the moment i figure what the heck i'll just keep doing it it's amazing how they stay the same age and we keep getting older yeah right um, there's something wrong there <laughs> um what can you tell us about today's computer science students are they any different? I mean, it, it, it's now the, the, the most um, popular major for the undergrads on campus. Um, clearly, something has it, it, clearly it's not so complex that um, to get that kind of, of, of uptake. I mean, what do you think is drawing people to computer science? Um, you these know, days? I, I wish I knew. I, the Prince, the, the local newspaper, published a story in the last few days that that listed the number of people in each of the majors and computer science is about equal to the next two put together. Mm. So it's over 15% of the population is computer science. And that is, you know, it's unsustainable in some sense. <laughs> Otherwise it would be the Princeton university of computer science. And that's not likely to happen. Um, I don't know why it is so popular. I imagine it's a combination of, Effects computing is very much in the news in all kinds mm-hmm. of ways. It, you know, every day there's something new. Today it happens to be things about Chat GPT and so on. Um, mm-hmm. But there's always something there. Um, it is perceived, probably until very recently, as a way where you can make a decent living. You can actually be pretty well paid to do interesting work, and that's probably appealing to both parents and children. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, if one is interested in something and discovers you can get paid to do it when you graduate, that's probably a good thing. Um, and I guess there's probably just a snowball effect. If two or three or four of your friends are in computer science and they like it, maybe you should try it too. So mm-hmm. so I don't know, but it, it's surprisingly popular. And this is both good and bad. I mean, it's nice to have all these people who are interested in the field. And the problem, the downside is that there are a lot of people means classes are very, very big, much too big, in, in my opinion. And you know, some of the, the appeal of the teaching experience is not as good when the class is 200 people compared to 20 people, which it might have been 10, 15 years ago. So, so be careful what you wish for, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You think there'll be jobs for all those people when they graduate? Well, that's the other thing. I, as you've undoubtedly seen, lots and lots and lots of the sort of big name tech companies are cutting back. They're laying off people. Hiring is 
probably down for people who are just graduating, although I don't know for sure. Um, I have a few undergraduate friends who are having trouble landing jobs, which is not something that would have been the case maybe two, three years ago. So I don't know. And, and it's a good question of whether that will have an effect on computer science as a popular major. Suppose that you can't get a job as a computer scientist anymore. Then uh, people will go in other directions. Uh, but that's a very slow process. Oh, sure. Well, they must, they must enjoy it, and they must not be scared off by it. And I think some yeah. of that may have to do with, uh, you know, just people like you who have made it uh, de demystified over the years. I think part of it in our specific case is that our introductory courses are exceptionally well done. Uh, this, this is uh, the introduction to computer science, and then the next couple of courses, there's a, a, a cadre of exceptionally good uh, teaching faculty who do those things. They just do a beautiful job. And I think mm. what that means is that kids come in, they discover that even though they've never done computer science before, these things are so well taught, so well managed, that they discover it's interesting. And so they're happy to continue with that. And <laughs> so, so I guess if, if we did a poorer job on our incoming students, we wouldn't have so many of them. But that's probably not a desirable way to do things. <laughs> Brian Kernahan, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's such an honor uh, um, to include you. In it's a pleasure, and what absolute fun. Well, that was a great interview. That was a lot of fun. And Brian was so down to earth. Uh, it's amazing when people are so decorated with history, fame. Uh, when you hear about them, you're like, I have to meet this person. And then he's just a regular person who just did his thing. And I appreciate that. It was so kind of him to take the time to uh, to speak with us. Yeah. So thank you, Brian. Uh we're going to play the song for you, so in, inspired by the Hello World program, here is Hello, Hello World. World. Hello World, you can see my light. You typed a couple of lines and I came to life. Made a couple mistakes, you were so depressed. But now you coded me right, and I'm your first success. And hello, world. Hello, world, you are on the right. By the gleam of the screen, there's wonder in your eyes. I'm not much to look at, I'm a single line. But I'm your Java baby, and you are doing fine. Hello world, glad you took the time. Sunshine There are 
so many things that you can't wait to try but you've got to crawl before you learn to fly you stared at the cursor that blank command line but you cracked my code and all the stars aligned getting old Last time we spoke was when you shared your code The kids grew up to learn your ways of old But you can trace it back to me I am its soul I am the first program you designed Wasn't that great? That was that was a lot of fun. So we're at the end of our program. And uh, do you have a last word? Tomato. Do you have a last word? Toe jam. That's, that's a, a, a compound word. Okay, never mind. Tomato. To- oh. Touche. Yeah, there we go. So tomato, tomato, that's our bit of wisdom uh if you can call it wisdom (laughs) uh but uh to this we say hello world uh next episode we have sally Heyman will be joining us she is the granddaughter of the late dr morris jolson the man who inspired the song dr jolson's bag which is the second track on our album and we will 
be looking forward to sharing that interview and, uh, and the discussion about that song on our next episode, which will drop soon. Until then, have a great day. Peace. <laughs>